Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dolbert. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And today we've been missing you, Matt, but we're back. Full power, full steam ahead with Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, part four. Before we get into all that dreamy stuff, however, what is going on? Well, obviously, the first big thing that's going on is you're back with us, Matt. Hooray! Yay! Rumours of my death have been greatly exaggerated. (laughs) (laughs) So we've had the last, what, half dozen episodes without Matt, with lots of wonderful guest hosts who have stepped in to fill your seat, Matt, and done a great job, but it's fantastic to have you back. Uh, It's nice to have a seat kept warm. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure there are lots of people following us on social media that know what have have happened, but there are going to be people listening to this in a year or two's time, perhaps, that uh, they don't know what's happened to you. So do you want to just tell us? I'll just kick you off. On the 2nd of February, which is over two months ago, almost three months ago as we record, we were due to record in a few days' time, and I got a message from you saying... Oh, I'm waiting for an ambulance to rush me into hospital. I've got a swelling. It's getting bigger and bigger, and we don't know what's up. And then me and Scott message each other to say, oh, well, you know, maybe we should, like, delay this week's recording. That's right. Let's postpone what we're doing on Saturday. I'm sure it'll be fine in a week or so. Yeah, I I wish. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Yeah, um, it started off the Sunday before that. So, uh, in fact, the Saturday before that, where I was... um, unsurprisingly being me playing a game <laughs> online and i just happened to turn in my chair and suddenly felt this wincing pain in my groin area and when i checked it out to wonder what what's caused this we found a like a lump about three by three centimeters big so that was quite shocking in itself we made the decision quickly that was to go to the walking clinic at milton Keynes hospital the day after to get it checked out because it'd been a weekend there's not really much options to go to the gp the diagnosis we got there was they thought it was an abscess. So they put me on a course of antibiotics and said, if it hasn't shown any major improvements within three days, come back and we'll give you another week's worth of antibiotics. Cut forward to that Tuesday, that three by three lump had basically encompassed the size of something about the size of a rugby ball or an American football between my legs. Bloody hell. Yeah. And when I got into a hospital via the ambulance, because I couldn't walk, it was just too painful to do anything. They, again, took one look at me and said, right, we'll put you into the acute assessment ward and try and find out what the hell this is. And the swelling just got worse and worse. And even morphine wasn't killing the pain. It was that bad by the end of it. I got seen by a team of doctors who took one look at me and started rattling off words like sepsis, necrotic, and just generally get into theatre now. And after a quick phone call to uh, Tiff, my wife, to say, hey, look, I want to say just I'll see you on the other side that I'm being wheeled into the operating theatre now. Everything went black for a bit, but I was thankful I was in the right place because Northampton General Hospital, where I ended up, had already had 12 cases that year. So, so far this year of necrotizing fasciitis, otherwise known by the lovely title of flesh eating bacteria, Mm. which is what I'd been infected with. Yeah, this stuff is horrible. It, it accelerates at the rate of about a centimetre an hour. 
Hence why it was so rapidly growing over the course of those few days. Do they have any idea how, for our international listeners, I mean, Northampton's a city, but it's not a big city, how the hell they had 12 cases of necrotizing fasciitis, which is startlingly rare, in Northampton? I asked this to the team that was looking after me, the consultant and the doctors that I saw on a pretty much daily basis after I woke up. They didn't have any knowledge as to how it got in, other than that it would have got in by some kind of wound or some kind of cut somewhere. It attacks the perineum anyway as kind of the major mm. area that it goes straight for. So it may be being somewhere closer there, but it's one of these things we'll just never know. Mm. Normally it's uh, lots of gardeners or people that go outdoors that tend to get this thing. Yeah, but how did you get it mad? Yeah, Christ <laughs> knows, because I don't go outside. <laughs> But yeah, it was just one of these things that we'll, we'll never know the exact reason. We can theorise about it. Maybe it was Tiff having gone out and gardening barefoot, caught me with a toenail perhaps. <laughs> but honestly, no real concrete answer to that. And a frightening mortality rate for this. Yeah, it's about 35% is the overall stat that I found online. <laughs> it did come very close to me not coming out of the hospital. There was a time, because I had to be um, operated on two or three times for them to essentially open me up and then scrape out the infected flesh. And I mean, man, when we heard you were going in for surgery, it was like, well, yeah, we expected that. Mm. But then when you came out and they were like, oh, we're keeping you in a induced coma yeah. for a day, for a few days till Sunday. And then it was like for a week. What was it? Ten days in the end? Nine in total. Right. Yeah. And yeah, that was, that was a scary time. It was scary for me as well, because um, there's a term that I learned when I got out of ICU that they call ICU delirium, which is where you're kind of part in, part out of consciousness. And so stuff that is happening around you, I can pick up and kind of filter through my dreams. I was having just a series of rolling nightmares that went from one scene to another and then on to another and on to another, and then cycle back around to the start again. But it'd be interspersed by things that were informed by what was happening around me. Hmm. So I could see the figures of nurses or doctors or people walking around, the screens between the different bays, all through kind of, I'd say, a twisted lens. But I was vaguely aware of some stuff happening around me uh, to the point where I have managed to lift my hands up at one point. They felt like anvils because they were so heavy. Also with so many lines connected in them, like cannulas and other, other bits and pieces but managed to try and rip the um, intubation tube out of my throat because I was convinced as long as I could do something to try and alter this dream that I could try and break out of it. And I kept feeling there was something in my mouth every time that I went from one scene to another. So yeah, like stupid old me, not knowing what I was doing, put the hands together around the tube and just pulled. Oh God. Mm. So yeah, if you're wondering why my voice is a little off, it's still recovering, but it's getting there. <laughs> yeah. And what, you've been out of hospital now for over about a month and a half? Uh, yeah, coming up to two months almost now, because wow. I came out on the yeah. 3rd of March. Yeah, right. I was certainly in a rush to get out of that place, because yeah. <laughs> it would it certainly cost me a bucket load of sand while I was in there. That whole ICU delirium thing, I mean, that's something that I've seen turn up in fiction over and over again. It's a fairly common plot device, and it's the kind of thing that I just assumed was invented by writers. I had no idea it actually happened like that. It's nothing short of terrifying, trust me. I was telling Matt that, funnily enough, I'm re-watching The Sopranos near the end now, and Tony, the main character, gets shot, 
and goes into a coma, mm. is in an induced coma. And he had this whole episode where he's having these dream scenes, these kind of hallucination scenes, which have some overlap with Matt's experiences. And I guess down to the fact that the writers research what happens to people in comas. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There were things that, as I said, there's a certain degree of bleed that happens mm. between what I knew was going on around me. Things I recall were that there were definitely these masked figures moving around, all in uniform. And I was desperately trying to grab at their ID tags, trying to work out where I was, because I couldn't work out where I was because of all these scenes I was going between. There, there were things like a, a stairwell that I kept remember trying to, or a ramp that I was trying to get up but going around in a spiral. There was a big hole in the ground filled with water that I remember as well as a different one. An empty hospital where I had no idea where anything was. And you're just all these obviously different scenes and places and locations in my dreamscape. I was desperate to try and find out where I was and what was going on. So I just I'd try and grab hold of their ID cards to try and read what the text was. Mm -hmm. But I couldn't make anything out. It was like it was just blurred all the time. Now, listeners, you've probably heard of method actors. Matt is a method podcaster. <laughs> there he is going into a dream state just so we can talk more in depth about Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. Did you actually find the true location of Kadath while you were there? There were various places that I thought were off the coast of Wales that I have bizarrely... <laughs> Close enough. Oh, well, not far from Cornwall, which is referenced. Yeah. But I think Carter got it really easy. He did not go through what I went through. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sorry you went through all that, Matt, but, you know, we're very pleased to have you back, and there's been countless well-wishers on social media, many of which I've, you know, I've tried to pass on lots of messages to you from them. Yeah, we're pleased to have you back. No, in, indeed, I, I was quite overwhelmed with all the messages when I finally got access to a working internet connection and got flooded with messages when I was able to connect. And yeah, it was quite touching. So thank you everyone out there that did take the time. I'm sorry if I didn't get round to replying to everyone because there were there so many. <laughs> but, but thank you, though. It, was, it really meant a lot to me. And now on to our main topic, the dream quest of Unknown Kadath, part four. When we last left Randolph Carter on his dream quest, he had ventured to the Onyx Mines to the north of Inganok in search of the source of the Onyx that was used to construct Kadath in the hope that it would lead him to the city itself. This did not prove fruitful, but it did, however, bring him into contact with some sinister Shantak birds. You know, I always find it weird when they say about Shantak birds, because the way I always have these things pictured in my mind from the artwork from the various different iterations of Call of Cthulhu and so on, they're more like dinosaurs or kind of pterodactyls. That they, These things aren't like feathered mm. or cute and fluffy little birdies that I'd have as part of my flock here. They're kind of terrifying. Well, as we'll see in a moment, they've got scales, uh, they've got heads like horses for some fucking reason, they are huge elephantine, and they are covered in nitre, which, I mean, just speaks to poor personal hygiene, I guess. <laughs> I can kind of get the horse head analogy, because they are kind of steeds in that sense, so maybe that was where he was going. Seeing great winged shapes taking flight all around, Carter turns back. He spots the sinister merchant, his yak, the source of the hoofbeats Carter had heard following him. 
leading on a noxious horde of leering shantaks to whose wings still clung the rhyme and nitre of the nether pits. So these things not only have horses' heads, but they leer. Have you ever seen a horse leer? Um, only Mr. Ed. <laughs> so you think the merchant's going around rubbing peanut butter on the gums of these shantaks to make them leer? <laughs> If I remember correctly, that's how they got Mr. Ed to move his lips so it looked like he was talking. It was all peanut butter. <laughs> I can't stand this stuff. The merchant bids Carter to mount one of the shantaks. Who were? Right. <laughs> it's that kind of story. Which proves difficult as they are covered in slippery scales. I think we just found out how they got to be so slippery. Oh dear. The two men embark upon a hideous whirl through the frigid space towards the impassable mountains. They pass over strange caves, which make Carter think of those on Ngranek, and which frighten the merchant and Shantak alike. Yeah, this is a kind of a, a weird voyage they go on right now, it feels like. Yeah, I feel like if this were animated, it'd be all kind of like squirrely weird patterns going on in the background. But this is also good foreshadowing because I don't think it's clear at this stage how much Shantaks are frightened of night gods, but this proves to mm. be a big plot point later on. Definitely, yeah. Eventually, they arrive at a grey barren plain dotted with bleak stone villages whose tiny windows glow with padded light. The air is filled with a shrill droning of pipes and a nauseous rattle of crotala which Carter takes as proof that they have arrived at that haunted place of evil and mystery, which is Leng. Had either of you ever heard of Crotella before this? No. No, I could think of words it's similar to, but no. <laughs> I'm glad it's not just me. I did end up having to look that up. And apparently they are ancient Greek musical instruments that resemble castanets. I always thought they were more Spanish. Castanets. Crotella aren't technically castanets, but they're a lot like castanets. Again, with the ancient Greek, <laughs> it is recorded that he would consult his encyclopedias quite a bit when writing these things. So you do wonder if he's just kind of cribbed that out of there or if it was something he knew about already. He used the Encyclopedia Britannica an awful lot when researching stories. I can't remember which one it was, but there's one of the stories we discussed where he's rattling off the names and descriptions of various occult texts, and it's lifted verbatim from mm. Britannica. He could have been playing a game where it's a case of flick through the book to a random page and then swirl <laughs> your finger and then just jab it down. And You've got to include that word somewhere in a sentence. <laughs> I now really want to believe that. <laughs> Carter glimpses dark forms below dancing around fires and wonders what manner of beings they are, for no healthy folk have ever been to Leng. That's mainly because they can never find where the place is, whether it's up in the <laughs> mountains or in some cold waste or wherever it ends up being. As the Shantak dips lower, Carter sees that the naked dancers have hooves instead of feet and seem to wear a sort of wig or headpiece with small horns. He then realises these are not headpieces, and that the people of Leng are the not-quite-human merchants who are the slaves of the monstrous moon things. Coming back over this story again, I found myself wondering over and over again, what is it that makes Leng so bad? I mean, we obviously come across the monastery a bit later on, which is not a nice place, but that's just one location. 
But Lovecraft really bigs up Leng as being mm. horrific, being this horrible place, and no healthy person ever goes there, and the people from there are repulsive and so on. But all we really know about them, I guess, is that they have strange features, they have horns, they have hooves instead of feet, which, you know, all right, is pretty weird, but it doesn't make them evil. And that they're kept as slaves by the moon beasts. So what is it that makes Ling so bad? You're right, it is bigged up a lot, and... Is this the only time we actually go to Leng in one of his stories? Do we go to Leng in any others? It's mentioned a few times in the other stories. Oh, for sure it's mentioned, but in this we actually go there. Well, there's the implication in uh, The Mountains of Madness that the city of the Elder Things might also be Leng, but that doesn't seem to correlate with this at all. No. So now we get there and we actually see the place, you know, in this story, we actually witness Leng. And you're right, it's like going to one of those places you've heard bigged up and then you get there and you're like, oh, okay, wasn't so great. Yeah, because <laughs> we'll talk about in a bit the monastery and the, uh, the dude with the silk mask and everything. But aside from that, yeah. Using the game material, that it's very much a arachnophobic's worst nightmare come true. We'll come to that in a moment mm. because... As we'll learn, the people of Leng are very much enemies of those spiders. So, yeah, all right, you might not like the spiders, but that doesn't make the people of Leng bad. The Shantak flies further into the frozen wastes. Occasionally, the merchant speaks to it in a guttural language, and the beast answers with tittering tones that rasp like the scratching of ground glass. Finally, they land on the remote and prehistoric monastery, whose sole occupant is a priest of Nalathotep. Now, I'd not really considered, until I was going back over this, that Shantax spoke. All right, Carter doesn't understand their language, hmm. but initially, all right, we're told they're sinister and evil, and they're described in fairly disgusting ways, and they're sort of monstrous steeds and so on, but... This implies that they're intelligent as well, which is something that you wouldn't necessarily associate with the descriptions we've had so far. We're not really getting too much of what they're saying, though, are we? We're just, mm. I mean, I can talk to my guinea pigs and they can make sort of tittering noise in response. <laughs> That's true. Is he just talking to his steed like somebody might talk to a horse and it might neigh? Mm. I mean, I don't know if it's more than that or not. I prefer the idea that they are actually having some kind of conversation. To me, that's just a bit creepier. Carter comes to believe that his captor is the same merchant who kidnapped him in Dilethleen. Come now to finish the job. This sinister little man leads Carter into the dark, windowless monastery, its walls covered with paintings telling the history of the people of Leng. Evidently, they took some uh, inspiration here from the Elder Things, because they put their history up on the wall, so do these guys. Yeah, though this predated uh, The Mountain's Madness, so I guess if you're looking at it in terms of Lovecraft reusing stuff, this, I guess, was more of the prototype for the City of the Elder Things than the other way around. Ah, there you go. There were scenes of old wars wherein Leng's almost humans fought with the bloated purple spiders of the neighbouring vales. And there were scenes also of the coming of the black galleys from the moon. 
and the submission of Leng's people to the polypus and amorphous blasphemies that hopped and floundered and wriggled out of them. I love the fact they had like three different ways they got out on the ship. That was uh, <laughs> yeah. that's very descriptive. Well, I think they're doing the, all three of those at the same time, aren't they? It's the new dance craze that's sweeping the dreamlands. <laughs> it's like the uh, Moonbeast warp. It's like just a step to the left or jump to the right. Yeah. And these bloated purple spiders. What's yeah. up with them? They sound pretty cool. <laughs> they do. <laughs> I think this is the only mention we have of them in any of mm. Lovecraft's work, but they've now become a fairly major part of the Dreamlands in Court of Cthulhu, haven't they? I've seen them used a number of times. They are pretty iconic when it comes to Dreamlands beasties that you don't want to meet. Yeah. Am I right in remembering that they're intelligent? I don't think it's ever come up really that people have tried to have a debate with them or <laughs> tried to get them to do puzzles. So their problem-solving capabilities and their intelligence doesn't really come up much in games. It's more a case of how quick they can kill an investigator. <laughs> but it's the fact that this is depicted almost like a series of ongoing battles against a neighbouring society. And I was wondering whether this suggested that the spiders actually have some kind of society. I be much more interested in using them like that than just as big scary monsters because i mean let's face it we've got lots of big scary monsters in court of cthulhu but big scary intelligent monsters are always more interesting no very true the frescoes suggest the people of leng once ruled an empire whose capital city contained a plaza dominated by a pair of winged colossal lions guarding the top of a subterranean staircase this, surely, is storied Sarkamand, whose ruins had bleached for a million years before the first true human saw the light. Its twin titan lions guard eternally the steps that lead down from dreamland to the great abyss. We've heard about these lions made of diorite, I believe a type of stone, and his old friend Pikman, the ghoul, told him about these lions some time ago, earlier in the story. There's quite a lot of implicit world-building in this little bit as well. Like, this is a pre-human empire, so that does seem to suggest that the men of Leng, even though they are humanoid, are very much not human, or at least are not related to humans. Hmm. If their city was ruins a million years before the first true human saw the light, then yes, they're clearly something else. Which, again kind of suggests interesting things about the dreamlands in terms of whether this is constructed out of human dreams because this all seems to predate humans by a very long time and also this whole thing about Sarkamand being uh, the gateway down to the great abyss that again suggests some kind of connection there, perhaps that the men of Leng and their empire were guardians of it, or maybe had some control over the Great Abyss. Yeah, I think that's one of the good things about this story. Like you said, Scott, the world-building aspects that are just referred to, but they don't go into too much detail. They leave a lot of space open for your own imagination to mm. fill in the gaps. The paintings also show the peaks dividing Leng from Inganok. Their caves populated by night gaunts, those mindless guardians of the great abyss, whom even the great ones fear, and who own not Nyarlathotep, but Hori Nodens as their lord. 
These creatures flop unendingly in the dark betwixt the Vale of Penath and the passes to the outer world. So I like the little detail there that even the great ones fear the night gaunts. Yeah, that's weird, right? Yeah. Maybe they're just ticklish. <laughs> oh, yeah. That could be it. And I just love that description of the night gaunts flopping unendingly in the dark. That's just a lovely turn of phrase. They can't see where they're going. They've got no eyes. And if they did, it's dark. There you go. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's the point. In Call of Cthulhu, is it ever specified how they get around? Is it like echolocation? Do they have really good proprioception? Do they have eyes in their nipples? I mean, how does this work? <laughs> yeah, I don't think it goes into detail about how specifically, but I like, like the idea of echolocation because mm. they do seem to be kind of almost a gargoyle featured with pronounced ears. So mm. yeah, that, that makes sense. The merchant prods Carter towards a domed space filled with these shocking bar reliefs. At the far end, a dais holds a golden throne where sits a lumpish figure robed in yellow silk, figured with red and having a yellow silken mask over its face. The merchant makes certain signs with his hands, and the figure responds using a disgustingly carven flute of ivory, blowing certain loathsome sounds that remind Carter of those used by the moon beasts. Flutes get a really rough ride in this story, don't they? Every time you see a musical instrument of any kind described in this, it tends to be disgusting or unnatural, but flutes in particular, they, they are disgusting. I was wondering, is this a motif that is echoing the court of Azathoth and the piped servitors that are dancing around? Or did Lovecraft just really have a thing about flutes? It's certainly got something in common, hasn't it, with the court of Azathoth and the pipers there? He just did like woodwind. That was all. <laughs> I mean, maybe he really did like the sound of flutes. And to put something that sounds so beautiful in contrast and say it sounds loathsome, it's a weird thing to say. Yeah, but it's not just the sounds that are loathsome, it's the instruments themselves. Mm. He keeps talking about these flutes, I and mean, this is clearly one of the same flutes that the moon beasts use, as being disgustingly carven. And <laughs> I don't know whether he had something kind of sexual in mind there, but it's really difficult not to picture this in phallic terms. This one time at band camp, <laughs> brilliant <laughs> yes i like to think there's some kind of link there matt yes <laughs> the silk slips from one of the priest's grayish white paws and carter realizes what the noisome priest really is terrified carter pushes the merchant into a well reputed to lead down to the vaults of zin grabs his lamp and runs into the labyrinthine corridors of the monastery now carter has realized what the priest is but he doesn't tell us <laughs> i mean it's kind of implied but people have read various things into this it's using one of the same flutes that the moon beasts use mm. it's playing the same kind of sounds that carter heard on the dark side of the moon it has paws the same way as the moon beasts are described yeah. as having paws it's described as being noisome the way that the moon beasts are described as being noisome i mean yes all right lovecraft hasn't said oh carter realized it was a moon beast but it's a fucking moon beast 
Yeah. If it quacks like a duck. We talked before about the fact that this was written before Lovecraft reads The King in Yellow. Yeah. And yet this has got this yellow mask on. So that's just coincidental, perhaps. Or, you know, the fact that yellow does have some significance. But what do we make of this priest then? Because it's not just a moon. Be- well, it is a moon beast. But he's the moon beast. And he's, he's like very special. He is like this high priest in this temple. There's no reason they shouldn't have temples. But yeah, he doesn't seem to have any special powers or anything. He just seems like a, a regular moon beast playing this flute. It just seems a little odd. I don't know. What do you make of it? The waters get even more muddied when you look at some of the stuff that's been put in the game as well, especially in the old Dreamland source book, where it describes the high priest not to be named as an avatar of Nilathotep, mm. which seems someone didn't read the section before this where it says that this being worships Nilathotep. So unless he's a really narcissistic <laughs> avatar, it just doesn't really gel at all here. Well, I think I've heard some people saying that, but I mean, I was reading the Dreamland's book last night from... I don't know, the version from the 90s. And it was very much saying what we're saying here. You know, it's clearly a moon beast. But perhaps it is like a priest of Nalathotep as well. Yeah. yeah. It's not an avatar of Nalathotep. In the later editions, I think the sixth edition of the book, the hardback, does actually list it as an avatar of Nalathotep. Hmm. Right. I mean, I guess Nalathotep could take the form of a moon beast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the idea that Nalathotep is his own priest, you know, I don't know. That seems quite in character, really. Mm. he's the kind of narcissist that would do that yeah after carter's lamp burns out he stumbles around in the dark lost eventually he falls down a burrow and tumbles for what seems like hours finally landing in a ruined city he spies a couple of monstrous stone lions in amongst the ruins and deduces that he has chanced upon primordial sarcomand that was lucky yeah the dreamlands clearly aren't that big. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every, everything's like just down the road. Well, I guess there is that sort of dream logic that this is the place that's on his mind at the moment because he's just seen all these frescoes. He falls down a hole in the ground and dream logic would dictate that, yeah, that's where he comes out. So I guess that does sort of lean into the dreamlike aspect of the dreamlands. Hmm. And it's not the only time that will happen as well. No. Weighing his options, Carter decides against heading into the underworld again, as it proved dangerous and fruitless before. Yeah, no shit, you ran into the dolls. (laughs) His best bet would surely be to find a boat, but he wonders where to find one in the deserted city. Following the unnaturally green smoke of a campfire, Carter is surprised to spot a boat in the harbour. Unfortunately, this proves to be one of the black galleys from the moon. When Carter surveys the campfire itself, he sees his three erstwhile ghoulish companions being tortured by the moon beasts. Yeah, these are the three ghouls that almost gave up their lives to escort him through the dreamlands and help him find his way, and here they are being tortured. Yeah, they were going to double back and head down through the underworld again, but had ended up being trapped in the upper dreamlands because they helped Carter escape uh, Gug, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Deciding he has no chance against so many moon beasts, Carter crawls on his belly to the entrance of the abyss in search of help. Pikmin, luckily, had taught Carter a password understood by Nightgaunts, so Carter heads down into the stifling odour of nether gulfs in search of help. 
Before long, Carter is seized by Nightgaunts, but they stop tickling him, yay, when he speaks the password. Just wondering whether the password is, <laughs> stop tickling me. <laughs> yeah, enough of that. <laughs> Carter tells them of the capture of his friends, and they fly him to the Ghoul Warrens to gather reinforcements. The eagles come to the rescue. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Though written some well, 15 years before Lord of the Rings. Again, great minds think alike. <laughs> this got me thinking, have any of us really made much use of Nightgaunts in our games? Well, or indeed most Dreamlands creatures. Because I know I used to look at the, the rule book and sort of think, oh, that looks interesting. Oh, no, it's a Dreamlands monster. I can't really use that because it's a Dreamlands monster. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's a strange logic, but... Or well, maybe it isn't, but I kind of felt like if I was going to use Dreamlands monsters, I needed to use them in the Dreamlands, and mm. I didn't run the Dreamlands very much. So there was a bunch of monsters in there that I'd very, very rarely, if ever, use. I don't know about you guys. Did you make that distinction? I guess I've always associated Nightgaunts with the dreams, as that's where they come from, the stories. But on the other hand... One thing that keeps getting hammered home in the Dreamcast of Unknown Kadath is that there are all these connections between the Dreamlands and the waking world. There mm. are places where the fabric between worlds is weak. There are places where there are paths that lead to the waking world. And also, these things, I guess, like any entities, can be summoned. So... I see no reason not to have night gaunts in the waking world. Clearly, they're not going to be that common, but that's true of any Lovecraftian monster. Well, you, Matt, you've used many Dreamlands monsters in your games outside of the Dreamland setting? I can think of one time we did. Without giving spoilers away, there's a particular project that three of us worked on where indeed they do turn up in not a quite Dreamlands setting. But there is a kind of overflow from the dreamlands a yeah. bit i think we kind yeah. of set there yeah. didn't we but also like oh i can't use a shantak because uh, that wouldn't be realistic i'll use a shoggoth <laughs> instead that's far more realistic where's the realism <laughs> i mean i guess it's a kind of sense of continuity but mm -hmm. and being true to the, the source material but still i don't know just use them if you want to use them yeah i certainly have no qualms about using a night gaunt in a waking world game it's just that i've never found a reason to do so yet, though I am now kind of interested in doing so. Well, there was that uh, story, I think, from, was it Private Life of Elder Things? Or one of the collections, yeah. Diva Nodenti by uh, Keris MacDonald, yeah. Yes, that's the one. They turned up in quite an interesting fashion in that. Oh yeah, very creepy. Carter is soon reunited with Pikmin, and the two organise an aerial cavalry of ghouls, born by night gaunts. Rising from the abyss, they swoop down upon the moon beast encampment. Yeah, we get a big, like, combat scene here, like a mass combat scene. Oh, not just one. This whole section coming up is just action-packed, especially by Lovecraft standards. I was going to say, it's very out of character for him. He's not great at writing them. He's no Robert E. Howard, is he, no. when it comes to writing uh, action scenes, though? He manages to work a few nice turns of phrase in, some of which will come too soon. But on the whole, when it comes to describing action, he takes a very high-level overview and sort of tells you what the outcome of the fight was, mm. rather than describing the fight itself. 
which is fine. This isn't really that kind of story. No. But on the other hand, yeah, comparing this to, like you say, what Robert E. Howard might have done with the same material, it does feel a bit perhaps anemic. I was actually thinking that would be a good way to try and describe combat in gaming would be to do that high-level overview, because it'd certainly be more interesting for me than doing it slog by slog. Yeah, we do have a pitched battle in this with large amounts of opponents. Going back to the Two-Headed Serpent, when I wrote a battle scene in that that very much does work that way, I did take a very high-level view there because I wasn't interested in playing it out as round-by-round combat, Mm. because doing that with a pitched battle is perhaps not very interesting. I was thinking of it much more, here are the PCs going through this battlefield, here are some of the things they might encounter, here are the challenges they'll face in trying to survive, but I'm not going to have them fighting an army, that's just ridiculous and fiddly and completely counterproductive. Rather than killing their foes, the ghouls guide the Nightgorns to seize the Moonbeasts and their slaves, taking them down to the depths and delivering them to dwellers in darkness whose modes of nourishment are not painless to their chosen victims. That's basically a roundabout way of saying that, yeah, it's painful to get eaten. Yes, I can't imagine this a lot of fun. Go almost like that dog soldiers moment. If it was happened to me, it would be a case of screaming at the thing. I hope I give you indigestion, you <laughs> bastard. <laughs> but anyway, Carter convinces the army not to sink the black galley, although he does throw many of its fixtures into the sea. So he basically wrecks the joint, but he doesn't <laughs> sink it. I don't think that's unreasonable because the last time he was on one of these ships, he did not have a happy experience. Yeah. And talking to his now rescued ghoulish friends, Carter hears that they went to Dilithleen in search of sea passage to Sarkamand, but were drugged with wine from a ruby bottle just as he had been. Their captors then brought them to Sarkamand, but only en route to Leng, where they had planned to sacrifice the ghouls to the veiled priest. The ghouls had spotted a moon beast garrison on an island near Inganok. They suggest attacking it, but the night gaunts are reluctant to fly across the sea. Carter suggests taking them on the black galley and teaches the ghouls how to row it. Yes, so now we're getting the second big battle lined up. Yes, an ocean-going battle. (laughs) But I like the idea that these sinister creatures, these night gaunts, who even the gods themselves fear, who can fly across the dreamlands, as we'll see later, at dizzying speeds, at speeds that Carter's mind cannot comprehend, Mm. are afraid to fly over the sea. Yeah, it's a bit weird. I'm not saying that I don't buy it. I just think it's a nice touch. It's an interesting bit of characterization. Maybe they never learned to swim. <laughs> Maybe they're water-soluble. <laughs> when the galley arrives at the island's bustling harbour, the locals suspect nothing until the boat approaches the wrong dock. You get all that way and then you just forget to reverse into the right bay. What the hell? <laughs> yeah. They start throwing javelins, but the ghouls open the galley hatch, releasing a swarm of nightgaunts like a flock of horned and cyclopean bats. The best kinds of bats. It's like a grape shot with a cannon. No nightgaunt shot. Bang! (laughs) 
The Nikons make short work of the moon beasts, lifting them aloft and dropping them so the victim would burst in a manner highly offensive to the sight and smell. I just love that description, just these moon beasts being hauled up into the air and dropping down with these wet plops that smell awful. It's like a balloon full with a turd. <laughs> With the prospect of returning to the abyss, overcoming their fear of the sea, the night gaunts take their surviving prey off to terrible fates beneath the earth. With their foes vanquished, the ghouls bring the boat into the harbour to loot the city. Carter teaches them to use the javelins they recover, then takes some time to destroy the solid ruby idols worshipped by the moon beasts. And I note here that it says in the text, Carter took the trouble to hammer five yes. of them into very small pieces. That's very specific. <laughs> and it's not, I'm not just going to break them. I'm going to break them and then smash the pieces into rubble. That sounds like the result of a failed sanity roll to me. Like yeah. they've, they've brought back some memory of his time on the moon or something. And he's just going to like, nope smash <laughs> <laughs> which considering his interactions with the moon beasts up to this point is entirely reasonable yeah last time he encountered one of their ruby artifacts it was the bottle of wine that drugged him and got him kidnapped so yeah this is obviously stirring up loads of shit for carter that's just me thinking beautiful statue made of a precious gemstone and now it's in pieces Oh, well. Yeah, but it was an evil statue, Matt. An evil statue. Exploring further, Carter finds a temple reminiscent of the monastery in Leng and is so frightened by a strange bronze door that he flees. Yeah, doors are terrifying things. Been there. Done that. Meanwhile, the ghouls have plundered all the gems and the moonwine they can find, just like good adventurers, because, of course, they loot the corpse of everyone <laughs> they find, yeah. Absolutely, just like you should. But I'm fascinated by this door because it's described as being a small door with strange carvings, it's bronze, but there's just something about it that freaks Carter the fuck out. Yeah, I was really taken by this door. I mean, it's like yeah. we don't see beyond it, do we? And he doesn't no. open it, and nobody opens it. We don't know what's beyond it. He just runs off. It's a hobbit hole. <laughs> yeah, it's not round. Well, it might be round, I guess. We're not told. I don't think we're told, are we? I didn't visualise it that way. But but in a lot of ways, this is the very essence of horror. There is this sinister door there. There's something terrible behind it, but no one wants to know what it is. Mm. That is Lovecraft's fear of the unknown in a nutshell. I'm not sure you could give somebody a sanity roll for seeing a door, though. No, but you could perhaps have them make a power roll as they get closer. Yeah. You know, whatever's behind there is giving off psychic emanations or whatever, or they've got a chance to sort of pick up just how wrong the whole thing is. There is a, I think it's an R. Chetwin Hayes story that made it into one of the Amicus horror anthology films about a door oh god yes it's a door that's picked up in kind of an antique store yeah it's taken home and then when he puts it up as like an art installation it opens up into a room that shouldn't be there oh nice and it opens up into this other time as well yeah that is a pretty scary looking door to be fair oh that sounds awesome yeah yeah that was tales from the crypt wasn't it it's not that one it's uh i think it's tales from the grave oh it's up beyond the grave that's it yeah yeah the ghoul sentries spot another black galley approaching. 
While this galley's crew decide not to dock, having seen the superior numbers of the ghoulish invading force, the ghouls believe the fight is not yet over, and sure enough, this black galley disgorges landing parties of moon beasts and Lenyan slaves elsewhere on the island, greater in number than one vessel could potentially hold. It's a TARDIS. Carter and Pickman divide their forces, with two platoons of ghouls engaging the landing parties while they, in turn, head out to combat the now undermanned galley. The land battle is fierce, with grave casualties on both sides. Bodies tumble into the sea, where they are sucked quickly under by certain submarine lurkers, whose presence was indicated only by prodigious bubbles. <laughs> So there are strange kraken things in the water. I'm not sure what we've got in there, if we've been told that, but there are strange monsters under the surface of the ocean sucking these things down. So maybe the night gaunts weren't being cowards. Oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> if I remember right, the map that accompanies the Dreamland source book, where it says a portion of Earth's dreamlands, does in fact have little sea monster-type uh, images. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Here there be griblies. After a half hour of fighting, the ghouls finish off the last of the invaders and their galley is driven away from the isle. You see, half an hour in real time, that's like 10,000 combat rounds. That just would <laughs> yeah, but it's not a real fight unless you play each one of them out, Matt. <sighs> Otherwise, you're stealing time for the players. And there's the true horror. <laughs> Carter and Pickman decide to retreat before any further invaders come and withdraw to their own galley. Account reveals that a quarter of the ghouls fell in battle. That's not too bad, 25%, I guess. Also, 25% casualties is quite high. Yeah, but compared to the 100% casualties of their opponents, that's... <laughs> yes. Pickman convinces his comrades not to eat their wounded, because you don't eat your friends. Well, apparently ghouls did before Pickman came along. The story implies that this might be an ongoing battle that he's got with his adopted family. Returning to Sarkamand, the ghouls plan to call upon the Night Gaunts once more to serve as steeds. Carter makes an impassioned speech to the gathered troops, asking for their help in his quest. If the ghouls can convince the Night Gaunts to carry Carter to Kadath and provide a guard to accompany him, he is certain that his journey will be safe. Night Gaunts can dodge Shantax in the air, and apparently even the Great Ones fear them. Pickman adds his voice to Carter's, and the ghouls, grateful for Carter's assistance against the moon beasts, agree to help him. Together, they make plans for this audacious voyage. Yeah, this is turning into a big quest. One might almost call it a dream quest. Indeed, let's break off there to see what Carter, Pickman, the ghouls and the night gaunts get up to in the next episode. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Elias. Thank you for listening. Well, it is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. First of all, thank you to you for listening to this podcast. Thank you to anyone who has ever backed us. Thank you very much to our army of ghouls and night gaunts. And we have a number of new people to thank by name. Yet, thanks very much to Rachel Dockery. 
And also thanks to Flix Capacitor. Hopefully we got that right. And thank you very much to John Edwards. And thank you to Patrick Garrett Pavisi. And thank you much to Rasmin Rihai. Again, hopefully I got that right. And thank you very much to Craig Pay. And of course, if we have mangled any of your names, do let us know and we will have another try at them and do our damnedest to unmangle them. Yeah, it's a pleasure to see Craig at the end there. You guys didn't know Craig, I don't think, but he was in Milton Keynes before I got to know you two. We were oh. we used to get together in the late 90s to play games with Matt Knott and Kevin White and Craig and, uh, yeah, one or two others, David Arthur. Oh, wow. That was the kind of Milton Keynes group that I knew at the time. MKRPG before MKRPG. Well, indeed. Yeah, before I met Neil in the pub and he suggested setting up the club. Yeah, and then, then Craig moved away and just got back in touch like a couple of months back very nice yeah i don't think i've ever met him but it's good to meet him by this degree of remove at least and if you are enjoying the good friends of jackson elias please do let people know we would be ever so grateful if you left a review somewhere or just mentioned something to your friends on social media. Just get the word out there and we'll do exciting things to your friends' ears. May or may not involve night gaunts. We can't <laughs> promise anything. <laughs> all right, well, uh, you've been listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. That's all we have for today. Until next time, it's a goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Blasphemous Tomes dot com. Mm.